You're listening to A Town Called Nowhere. Chapter 2. A Stranger Comes to Town. The Journal of Archimedes Croriton, July 23rd, 1888. I have been informed that my train has just crossed into Texas, and the terrain has already become wilder than I could ever have imagined. The emptiness of these spaces is immense. It seems scarcely possible to me that men could lead their lives here, not merely from want of sustenance and water. It is the scope of the landscape itself that crushes a man with his own insignificance. In England, each mile brings a new town and a more pleasant vista. Ours is a land built on a scale that a man can walk in a day. Well tamed with its reassurances of ancient manor houses, village chapels, welcoming taverns. Our island is, as much as anything, a well-tended and civil garden. But this is a vast, wild expanse. There's nothing on the grasslands to stop the wind on its rush to the equator. How could this place serve to do else but drive men mad? July 24th, 1888. Since San Antonio, the terrain has grown steadily more impossible. The train rises through rough terrain into a rocky desert almost devoid of life and greenery. This is the New Mexico Territory. A fellow passenger, seeing the look of unabashed concern writ upon my face, attempted to reassure me by saying that all of the savages had been pacified shortly after the end of the war. But I suspect... They are all savages here, to one degree or another. What seemed a grand adventure in Boston and a splendid project in New Orleans now seems something else entirely. The wisdom of taking employment with Jean Dumont, a man I have never met, now escapes me. But as I have never wanted or needed for employment before, perhaps mistakes are inevitable. The fact remains that I have designed and built the components for the largest Cornish engine the world has ever seen. While my technical employment may no longer qualify me to be a gentleman in the strictest sense, it gives great satisfaction to both my purse and my person. And I feel that the future belongs not to gentlemen, but to men with great machines and greater ambition. On the morrow I disembark the Union Pacific Line in Tucson with the 300 tons of my cargo, and from there it and I go by wagon to construct a pumping engine for the Morning Star Mine of Grantham, Arizona. Archimedes Croriton stepped down from the train into a scorching Arizona day. One of the roughnecks on the platform pointed him to the freight yard, and Archie employed him to carry his trunk across the rail lines and onto the freight platform, which was no more than a sea of railroad ties set directly onto the desert floor. In the center of the freight platform was a crude shack constructed against the relentless hammering of the sun. Archie took shelter there and watched the yard crew unhook his boxcars from the train by means of a crude, small steam engine mounted on a cast-iron platform. Everywhere he looked, his engineer's eyes saw the opportunity for mechanical improvement. The diameter of the engine's drive wheels needed to be enlarged, 
The platform also would benefit from a trailing truck wheel. Without it, the drive wheels unweighted while reversing and slipped dreadfully against the rails. This made the whole process of moving the freight cars a Sisyphusian cycle of start, stop, slip that pained Archie to watch. Soon, he imagined, the cast iron platform would crack or bend so much against the strain that the engine would become unusable. Still, he allowed, it was easier than pulling boxcars by hand. Some distance off the siding, men had gathered in a circle. He had assumed they were some of the men meant to haul his freight. They were yelling and cheering some action within their ranks. As Archie approached, he saw a large man with a full red beard hoist another man by his collar and belt and hurl him out of the circle. Unable to regain his footing after such an undignified exit, the poor soul sprawled on the railroad ties, just short of Archie's fine English riding boots. The large, red-bearded man disappeared back into the knot of shouting men and re-emerged with a battered black cowboy hat. He threw it at the man on the ground, saying, I told you nay to meddle. Then he looked up and saw Archie in his khaki expedition suit, complete with pith helmet, and quickly composed himself. He knuckled his forehead in the customary salute of the British Navy and said, Baggin your pardon, sir. No offense meant to your parsonage and then he turned back into the crowd. Archie heard an ear-splitting crack, and the crowd gave a collective whoo and went silent. He pushed his way into the ranks. In the center was a tall woman dressed in men's clothes. Was that buckskin? Beating a man on the ground with a bullwhip. Archie said, Good Lord. A grubby man next to him who wasn't letting a few missing teeth stop him from grinning ear to ear looked at Archie and said, I don't reckon even the good Lord can save him now. And that's sure. She told him. She told everybody. Don't you dare show up drunk in the morning. The man with the red beard reached over several smaller people and clouded the toothless man in the ear, saying, No blaspheming. Then he nodded to Archie, as if somehow decency was their common cause. The man on the ground struggled to rise, and the woman let fly with her whip again. It snaked through the air and exploded into the man's side, causing him to yelp in pain. He fell over and lay on his back. The woman coiled the whip in her right hand, threw her hair back, and glared at the rough men of the crowd. I told him the same as I told you. I don't mind the drinking, but if you're too drunk to walk your wagon, you don't get paid. Anybody else feel like arguing contrary-wise? Most of the crowd said nothing. But here and there, a few said, No, ma'am. All right, then, back in line, and I'll see where our goddamn hall is. As the crowd broke up, Archie caught the eye of the giant with the red beard and waved him over. Archie said, My good man, what is your name? McAllister, at your service, sir, even if you are English. I beg your pardon? That's a savage land, sir. We civilized Christian men must stick together. Am I to take Scotland for a civilized land, then? Archie asked with a smile. Oh, only in the summertime, sir, McAllister said with a grin. Archie liked the man's easy and open way. He extended his hand. McAllister took it and wrung it heartily, crushing Archie's knuckles with affection. Thank you much, sir. A pleasure. As he rubbed his hand, Archie said, 
I'm looking for... And here he removed a letter from his vest pocket, unfolded it, and read, John Siskin, can you help me find him? No, sir. There's no John Siskin. She'll be the one you seek, McAllister said, hooking his thumb at the woman with the bullwhip. Jane, he said, nodding encouragement. But I've engaged a company to haul freight. McAllister nodded at the wagons. I'm the finest company in Arizona, but it's hers. I don't understand. Husband drank himself to death, and now she runs it better than he ever did, McAllister said with a shrug. Mind your manners, you'll do fine. From behind him, Archie heard the woman's voice. What in the hell are you supposed to be in that get-up? Archie turned, and Jane Siskin was glaring at him, with her coiled whip around her shoulder and her hat pushed back. Archie smiled and said, Ah, yes, Miss Siskin, as he bowed and doffed his pith helmet. I am Archimedes Croryton, at your service. Croryton? Eh, Croryton? she asked. You're our client for this haul? I am. Well, I hope you don't mind me saying, but that's an awful lot of shit to haul to a nowhere town like Grantham. What's in them boxes? Like it said in my letter, I ain't hauling no dynamite for nobody. Mining equipment. Parts for a large steam engine. Nothing explosive, I assure you. And the A? That's for Archimedes? Name sounds like you should be selling snake oil. You may call me Archie. You know, my great-great-grandfather the 18th Earl of Cornwall, was said to have been quite harsh with the peasants. They were peasants in those days, you know, but I don't recall any stories of him whipping anyone. You ain't some kind of prince, she asked with a note of distrust in her voice. No, I am but one step above a bastard and far less convenient. Less convenient than a bastard? I am a second son. You see, one can reliably disown a bastard without consequence. I am a thing that was had and then repented of. In brief, that is why I have come to your continent, and that is why I have engaged you to haul my freight. If there are no more personal questions, may we proceed? Jane stared at him for a minute. Then she nodded her head once and said, Red, can you do something about His Majesty's hat? I'm worried he's going to melt his brain with that foolishness in the sun. I can try, but the English are powerful fond of their funny hats. I didn't think there's anything I can do. My hat? asked Archie. What's wrong with my hat? It was recommended to me by Hanning Speak himself as just the thing for hot and humid climates. Humid? cried Jane. It don't rain here but once a year. Then she laughed wildly, showing her white teeth against her tanned face and buckskin garb. Another savage, thought Archie. After six hours of cursing and dust and wrangling ill-tempered animals, the boxcars were emptied and the component parts of Archie's machine had all been loaded onto the wagons and made fast. It was a motley armada of craft, horse teams, mule teams, and at least two teams of oxen, pulling a variety of wagons, 46 in total. It had been suggested to Archie that he might pass the time in town in the comfort of a hotel or a saloon. But Archie would have none of it. He found a battered chair in the freight station, retrieved a book from his luggage, and sat in the shade of the building and read while keeping an eye on proceedings. When it was all done, a tired and somewhat subdued Jane Siskin came to him and said, 
It's all safely loaded, as you can see, Mr. Croyton. Archie carefully marked his place in his book and said, Very good, Miss Siskin. What time do we leave in the morning? Hell, we're pushing on tonight. I ain't going to give these sons of whores another night to drink. I'd lose maybe two, maybe three more teams at least. We're overloaded as it is. You stay over and catch the stage in the morning, and you'll beat us there by a day at least. Archie tucked his book under his arm, replaced his pith helmet on his head, and stood. This is my equipment and my commission, and I intend to shepherd it every step of the way. Only after my machine has been installed will I rest easy. He kicked his trunk and said, In which wagon are I and my luggage riding? Jane snorted a laugh. Wagons is for cargo, mister. Teamsters walk their teams, especially with them damn oxen. She put her fingers in her mouth and gave an ear-piercing whistle. Red, get this trunk stowed and go help his majesty buy a horse. They were three days out of Tucson when the rear axle broke on the largest wagon in the train. The eight oxen in the team ground to a stop and bellowed for water. There was no water to give them until they got to Grantham. And so 200 tons of freight came to a dead stop in the blazing Arizona sun. The teamster who owned the broken wagon, a man known as Claude, stood next to the oxen, mirroring their plodding expression of long-suffering. Neither he nor they looked at the axle. They had just stopped because they could go no further and waited for someone to come along and get them moving again. In this heat, and at this level of exhaustion, the biggest difference between them might have been that Claude was the one wearing the cowboy hat. Archie rode along the stalled wagon train and reined up by the broken axle. Well, don't just stand there, man. What are you going to do? Claude looked at him blankly. After the last three days of bad road, he didn't even have the energy left needed to shrug. He took a drink from the canteen around his neck. There wasn't much left in it, so he had to tip it all the way back. Archie turned to Claude and shouted, Did you hit every rut between here and Tucson? I mean, did you aim for them? Jane rode up, slapping the flank of her Mustang lightly with the coiled bullwhip. She said, You can't talk to my man that way. Archie scowled at Jane and was about to protest, but mastered his emotions enough to say, If he wished to avoid excoriation, perhaps he should have taken better care of his wagon. Jane snarled. As charming as we all find your company, Mr. Croyton, I'll remind you that you were advised to avail yourself of the stagecoach and await delivery in Grantham. Then she turned to the teamster and said, Oh, for Christ's sake, Claude, did you break my fucking wagon? It done just broke, miss, said Claude. You did, Claude. You broke my fucking wagon. You gonna fix my fucking wagon? How many goddamn times are we gonna break down on this run? I knew I should have cashiered you and Gleason, you big dumb son of a bitch. She spit and whirled back to Archie. And you lied to me about the weight. I did not. Overloaded wagon. Whole damn train's overloaded. Dragging axles from the start. Don't you try and smooth talk me with your fancy words. Madam, began Archie. There you go again, you slippery shitheel. Claude stood with the oxen, fat tears rolling down his hopeless face. Jane said, God damn it, now look what you've gone and done to Claude. She swung down off her horse and changed her tone. 
Come on, Claude, you big softy. We're not really yelling at you. We're just yelling because it's powerful hot and we're sick of eating all this road dust. Aren't you sick of it? Claude nodded, rubbing tears and snot away with the heel of his hand. Yes, am Then why ain't you yelling, you big lummox? Because the wagon broke, and it's my fault. Hell, Claude, it ain't your fault. It's the road's fault. It's the axle's fault. It's God's fault. And most of all, it's my fault for giving you such a shitty wagon. Claude looked very confused. Well, go on, said Jane. Let it out. I hate this stupid wagon, said Claude timidly. No, Claude, you're going to have to do better than that. Stupid wagon. You go on. You can even kick it a little bit if you want, said Jane. Then she looked back to Archie. Now, what in the fuck's in that crate? I appreciate the tempers are high, Miss Siskin, and this is a rough and ill-mannered land. But I am your employer, and I will not be addressed in that manner, said Archie. Fine. What the fuck's in there, sir? Even Archie had to laugh at this. He recovered his leather-wrapped journal from his saddlebags and flipped it open. He matched the number scrawled on the crate and said, That is one quarter of the flywheel assembly. Jane opened her mouth to swear again, but stopped when Archie raised his hand and said, Allow me to save you the trouble of asking a profane and redundant question. Yes, it is a fucking flywheel. Now what are we going to do? Jane smiled and spit. Archie found it to be utterly unladylike, yet still charming behavior. Then she said, I'll have McAllister have a look at it, but I don't think we can fix it with what we got. And one thing's for sure. Ain't nobody coming down this road with an empty wagon to bail us out. No way in hell. Just then, they heard a rattling noise drifting back towards them from the front of the wagon train. They looked up and saw a man driving an absolutely empty wagon, bucking his way along the rocks and creosote bushes that lined the road. They looked at the wagon. They looked at each other. Then Jane raised her hand. Hold up there, cried Jane. As the man grew closer, she said, Why, Mr. Miller, I am glad to see you. Miss Siskin, said Virgil Miller, bringing his wagon to a stop. Be more glad to see you if you all weren't so much in my way. Had a bit of trouble, as you can see, and we were wondering if you'd like to make an extra bit of cash with that wagon of yours. Well, Miss Miller, that depends. If you've got seven tons of flour for me somewhere in this mess, I can oblige. I do not. Who's paying the freight on it? Supposed to be Fetterman, not a Bisbee. Jane made a face and spit. Virgil said, I guess that's why I'm having to go see him. Jane said, Ain't my fault, and maybe ain't even his. This gentleman rented out about every damn wagon in the territory. Virgil looked Archie up and down and said, Huh, gentlemen, is that what you call a man with a funny hat? Archimedes Croriton, at your service, sir. Ah, a gentleman. That's what you call a man with a funny hat and a funny name. That's as may be, said Archie. But it's very important that I get these crates to Grantham in an expeditious fashion. And as you have an otherwise empty wagon... My wagon is engaged, said Virgil. And you, Jane Siskin, you ain't done nobody I know any favors. Good day, Miss Siskin. Stranger. As they watched him go, Archie said, But I'm not a stranger. I... I introduced myself. He's just prickly because his freight ain't come through. And I ain't been exactly 
sympathetic to his predicaments over the years. Come on, Claude, let's get him to drag it off the side of the road. With the aid of McAllister and several of the men, they levered the back of the wagon up with the timber. Jane cracked the whip over the heads of the oxen, and the animals pulled the wagon a few feet forward until it slid completely off the timber and ground to a stop again. This process was repeated again and again until the road was clear. When the wagon train was in motion again, Archie said, But we can't just leave it here. Jane said, We'll finish up the run into Grantham, unload wagon right quick, and come back for it. Today, asked Archie, Don't worry, your lordship. No one's going to steal your 3,000-pound flywheel part. I'm not a lord, Archie said quietly, and I don't like loose ends. After leaving the wagon behind, the pace of the train quickened with the promise of a good stable and fodder for two-legged and four-legged creatures alike. From somewhere in the back, Archie heard singing. They came up over a rise, and there was Grantham, laid out before them. A cheer went up. Archie was shocked at how small the town appeared to be. Around the two main streets were a collection of mud huts, tents, and dangerously ramshackle frame buildings. On the periphery, more of these wooden buildings were under construction. A haze of smoke hung in the air, and Archie could hear the hammering of both carpenters and blacksmiths. To Archie's eyes, having grown up in a place where the newest building in the village was over 300 years old, Grantham seemed a place that had been constructed yesterday and would be gone tomorrow. The one exception to the frontier construction was an elaborate Victorian house set on a large lot on the far end of town. That had to be Monsieur Dumont's house. With its elaborate turret and high peak roofs, it could not have looked more surreal or out of place. Archie judged it to be a waste of resources. Who would build a fine house in this inhospitable place? This was a place for making a fortune and leaving behind as easily as a snake shed his skin. What Archie did not see was the mine. There was no evidence of it on the slope beyond the town. He had been told that the mine in Grantham was built right in the middle of town, but he had thought it was an exaggeration. As the wagon train worked its way down to the dry wash on the east end of town, the enthusiasm dried up. They still ain't fixed this damn road, said Jane, spitting at the sight of the obstacle ahead. The wash wasn't quite treacherous enough to require a bridge but the way wasn't quite smooth enough for overloaded wagons. It would require care and attention to navigate the freight through the cut in the bank and then back up into the town. As the wagon train stopped, Archie sidled uneasily on his horse. The excitement of being close to the start of his real work and finally being able to meet his unknown employer was unbearable. He turned to Jane and said, Miss Siskin, if you would excuse me, I would confer with my employer and find a spot for the cargo. Someone in the next wagon back shouted, I see a nice flat spot next to a saloon ought to do it. Leaving laughter behind him, Archie spurred his horse down the cut and through the wash, and then into Grantham. <laughs>